Hello students and welcome back to the Lore of the Iron Kingdoms with me, of course, Professor Castor. Today we're actually going to be discussing the older archives of the history and the military of the Kadoran Empire. In the future readings of these lore lists, we'll be reading all of the stuff up front at the beginning of each of the factions, so we don't have to go in and, you know, kind of catch up at the end. But I didn't realize that there was a little bit older lore that we could be reading, so that is what we're reading today. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast slash YouTube channel, please like, subscribe, let your friends and fellow gamers know. And as always, thank you, Private Your Press, for letting us read your fantastic lore, as always. And let's begin. Military of the Kadoran Empire, Loyalty, Strength, and Conquest. The Kadoran Empire is the inheritor of an ancient legacy of proud warriors. Its people are rugged and hardy men and women, united and inspired by the ambition of their empress. The enthusiasm for battle and the esteem afforded soldiers combined with the mandatory service has enabled Kodor to mobilize a substantial portion of its population. With ongoing efforts to modernize the military and optimize its industrial capacity, Kodor stands as one of the great powers of Western Amoran. Victories in the last several years, including the invasion and occupation of Lael, and pushing back Signaran defenders from the Thornwood, has increased the fear and respect the Kadoran army inspires across Western Amoran. The Kadoran military has recently made tremendous strides in modernization through the development of long-range artillery and more advanced warjacks as well as leveraging the military genius and organizational skills of singular leaders like Supreme Commandant Gorvalt Arisk. The invasion of Lael proved to be the boon for the army by bringing many vital supplies and technological developments to Kodor. Seizing and plundering the holdings of the Order of the Golden Crucible brought extensive alchemical stockpiles such as a vital blasting powder and other useful weapons into the hands of the Motherland's army. The entirety of Lely's industry is at their disposal. Focused primarily in Laedri and the former capital Merowyn, by seizing such assets, Kodor has also deprived her longtime enemy, Signar, of their oldest ally and inspired in many Kadorans the belief that nothing can stop their road to further conquest. Since that time, advances have unfortunately been more difficult and slow, but the fighting spirit of the soldiers remains undiminished. And looks like we have a little side panel here, the Kadoran Navy. There is no question that the Kadoran Navy lacks the same esteem in the minds of both the nation's citizens and its rulers as enjoyed by the Kadoran Army. Throughout its history, the Navy has been less prominent than the Army, received sparse praise, and generally been poorly funded. Nonetheless, the High Command is well aware of the strength at sea possessed by its southern rival, Signar, and by the sometimes pernicious neutral nation of Ord. Crix has also periodically threatened Kadorn's shores, although until recently the Nightmare Empire seemed to be content to raid closer to their own waters. Kodor boasts several significant port cities, most notable Port Vladivar, Skrodenberg, and Oak, and must preserve its water and shipping trade. This is the role of its navy, whose single fleet has recently received a fresh infusion of support and funding. While the army remains a clear priority of the Empress and her Chaosi supporters, the navy of the Motherland is stronger today than at any point in its history. Port Vladivar is the home port of the Kadoran navy, and the nation's pride was threatened in 606 AR when this vital city was subjected to an unexpected attack by Crixian vessels, including elements of the Black Fleet and ghostly revenant-filled ships such as the notorious Atramentus. Although the Crixian forces were eventually driven off, they inflicted severe damage on both the port city and the fleet. Fleet Admiral Pavel Nehimov took his own life shortly after this disgrace, 
and was replaced with Jezek Donikev, the current head of the Kadoran's navy. Donikev has managed to garner considerable support for the navy in the wake of the Port Vladivar disaster, including the funds to build a number of mighty iron hulls. The navy hopes eventually to employ their maritime might for a coastal invasion against southern rivals, but it is presently focused on defensive maneuvers to maintain the safety and integrity of their port cities and shipping lanes. Under Donikev's bold leadership, the fleet has increasingly tested the resolve of both Ordic and Signaran fleets by pushing further into southern waters. This has led to the occasional small-scale engagement, which Donikev considers essential in preparing his officers for more extensive battles he is certain will arise in the months ahead. Also, another apology to butchering Kador names. That seems to be a skill that I am pristinely good at. Many princes won throne. The modernization of the Kadoran military required several large ideological shifts. While it is true to a degree for all the modern military powers in the Iron Kingdoms, Kodor has arguably surmounted the largest internal barriers and overcome the longest and most entrenched traditions. Signar, Ord, Lael, and later the Protectorate of Minith had the luxury of inventing themselves as new nations, but Kodoran law and military doctrine were deeply rooted in the legacy of the ancient Kardic Empire. In recent years, Empress Ayan Vanar has brought a singular unity to Kodor, but it, this has not always been the case. Indeed, the almost universal support and acclaim Empress Vinar has won is a notable departure from all but her most recent predecessors. Until the time of the Vinars, Kodor's military was largely stagnant, as the kingdom's rulers lacked the vision and the will to adapt to the changing needs of warfare. Before the Orgoth in the centuries when the old Kardic Empire united the northern tribes by sword, lance, and fire, these harsh lands were divided into a variety of territories called Velaskias. The Velaskias once counted themselves as sovereign kingdoms in their own right and only reluctantly bowed to their Kardic conquerors. Even after the powerful lords governing these regions surrendered their authority, they clung to the claims of special status and royal blood. Once these rulers were called kings, but by the final years of the Kardic Empire, they were referred to as the Great Princes, a title chosen to demonstrate their vassalage to the Kardic Emperor or Empress. This tradition was renewed after the Corvus Treaty when Kodor was established as a new nation, with the great princes restored as the highest nobility but subordinate to the sovereign. Also, for everybody that doesn't remember what the Corvus Treaty was, that was the treaty after, they, after the Iron Kingdoms pushed out the Orgoth originally before they came back recently, but uh, that was the treaty to help kind of reestablish country lines that uh, Kodor believes they were kind of screwed over on for a lot of the fertile farmlands that they feel were rightly theirs to begin with, based on the original Kardic empires before the Orgoth came. But that is neither here nor there, and they will probably fight for that land every step of the way. So, But before we continue this, we actually do have a, a little side panel here that kind of goes over the military structure of who's in charge of what. And I will have a picture posted on the YouTube channel just so you guys can read it over yourself. Top of the list would be Empress Ayn Vanar, which makes sense since she's the Empress, followed by the High Command and the 18 Great Princes, and then Kodorn Security. So she runs those three and they run everything else. High Command then moves down to Supreme Commandant Gervalt Ursk, who takes care of pretty much the first, second, and third Kodorn armies. 
and High Command also takes care of the Kadoran fleet. Also, something I didn't realize that the Kadoran security under Empress Venar is in charge of the Grey Lords and the Grey Lord Covenant, which I'm very concerned on why they made that the Kadoran security, I suppose. That would probably got really bad during the invasion of the Infernals when the whole Grey Lords Covenant kind of went AWOL and joined them, but that is a different story. But after, after the first, second, and third armies, those guys control a bunch of stuff below it. You guys can read it yourself by pausing it for a bit. Even goes through all the military numbers as well, so you can see how big these armies actually are. But let's get back to the reading. After the long centuries of Orgoth occupation, Kodor's ruling elite, who rose to prominence alongside other Emery's leaders of the rebellion, had to confront a legacy of cultural disruption and uncertainty. Commoner and noble alike were eager to embrace any symbols hearkening to the past glories of the Kardec Empire. Unfortunately, records detailing the governance of the old empire were incomplete and in disarray. One area that remained muddied was the exact process by which the lineage of the Kardec sovereigns had been verified and approved in the empire. Old Wall stated that the Kardec Empire's sovereign must descend from the ruling families of the Vlaskia, but otherwise these stipulations were vague. <laughs> so they had to come from a city in Kodor, but that was about all they had. It was uncertain whether all the royal, quote-unquote, bloodlines were equally valid or if more stringent requirements existed to limit the lineage to fewer or even only one of these esteemed families. There were those who insisted only originally Kardic Valeskias qualified not later subjugated tribes like the Umbrians, the Skudarovs, or the Kazites. Only known was whether the great prince as a collective had any legal authority to endorse the coronation. This uncertainty prompted innumerable feuds and decades of strife starting almost immediately after the founding of Kodor. The Umbrian great prince Vlad... Vladin Tepeski seized power and became the ruling monarch of Kodor in 209 AR, just seven years after the Corvus Treaty. Scholars in his employ claim the Tepeski bloodline to be the strongest and most closely connected to the last Kardec Emperor, who was described as horse lord born of soil of the eastern plains and who preferred to rule from the eastern capital of Old Korska rather than from Korsk in the west. Others disputed this interpretation of historical text and emphasized an earlier era when the Tibeskis had divided Umbri from the empire, sparking the Horse Lords War. The opposition was unable to organize in sufficient strength to stand against Vladin, and the most vocal descending nobles were assassinated. The Tibeski line clung tenaciously to rulership for the next 60 years, passing the crown through three inheritors, but their rule remained contested. The decades under the ruler of Vladin, Geza, and Lavash Tepeski were torn by internal strife. The greatest of these rulers was Lavash Tepeski, who held Kodor in his iron fist for over 30 years from 236 AR to 272 AR, called the Lavish the Tormentor, well, that's a fun name. He hoped to unite Kodor by instigating war with the southern nations. His plan was to crush the lesser armies of his neighbors quickly by employing the unyielding power of the newly built Kadoran Colossals. Although his wars against Lael and Ord were initially successful, his plans for expansion faltered after Signar joined the war, bringing their own Colossals. The Colossals' war from 
250 to 257 AR were ultimately an expensive failure for Kodor, which was left both humiliated and bankrupt in this defeat. The harsh terms at the end of the war forced Lavish to agree to dismantle not only his towering colossals, but also the factories and courts that had produced them. This was a blow to Kodoran pride and military strength and left the nation at a disadvantage for several decades. Kodor would not return to Tebeski rule. And I suppose if you mess up that bad, uh, you probably get booted out pretty quick. Lavesh had a reputation for tyranny and mistreated his highest vassals as well as the wider populace. His wars required punishing taxes and forced conscription. Whatever his actual failings, they were continually exaggerated by competing great princes who hoped to destroy the Tebeski dynasty and seat new blood on the throne. By the end of the Lavish's long reign, his family was universally despised. Lavish evaded many assassination attempts to die of old age, a fact his enemies insisted was evidence of his sinister pacts. From this point forward, the Tebeski bloodline was linked to rumors of sorcery, dark cults, and unseemly conspiracies, although his members remained popular romantic figures to the Umbrians in the East. I suppose that's why Vladimir Tebeski is called the Dark Prince? That would make sense. Dmitry Tapatovic ousted the Tebeski heirs in 272 AR and was the first to assume the title of king. King Dmitry took measures to institute more formal laws to define the monarchy in Kodor as distinct from, if connected to, the sovereigns of the old empire. Despite these efforts, after his reign, the families of the great princes, particularly those in the populous middle and southern territories, continued to squabble over succession claims. The names of the families controlling the Volokhiv changed over time, but each insisted they could trace their roots back to one or another of the old Kardic emperors. It was not until centuries later, after the horrors unleashed by the necromancer king Ivan Vladikin, the Frenzied, that a stable dynasty took control of the Kadoran throne. After leading the forces that defeated the necromancer in a coup in 459 AR, Mikhail Vanar reluctantly accepted the crown. Kodor soon began to see significant advances and reforms, a process that accumulated in the ascension of Queen Anne Vanar to the throne. <laughs> I suppose when you put the frenzied at the end of a name, that does uh, that doesn't really note very much of a stable king, does it? All the effectiveness of each of the Vanar rulers after Mikhail is debatable. The common perception across Kodor is that the Vanars ushered in an era of success and prosperity to their nation. The Vanar mystique is so pervasive and powerful that the difficulties faced by the first members of the dynasty have been largely forgotten. Indeed, the one interruption of the Vanar dynasty is considered proof of their divine right to rule. It was during the reign of the Minite king Ruslan of Vigor in 499-511 AR that Signar defeated Kodor during the First Thornwood War. This setback reinforced to many Kodorans the ill-omened passing of the crown to a non-Vanar sovereign. The most famous and widely adored of the Vanars was King Ivad, who became known as the People's King when he abolished the serfdom in 546 AR, and it was he who popularized the notion that Kodor would rise again as a great empire, inheriting the strength and honor of the old. His granddaughter, Anvanar, would be the one to eventually see this dream become reality, building the efforts to set forth by her grandfather, and later by Regent Simonev Latvia, who held the throne until her majority. 
She cemented her popularity in 606 AR after successfully conquering Lael by crowning herself Empress of the Cadoran Empire. Regardless of the popularity of the Venar dynasty, the great princes of Vlakavia remain powerful Cadoran nobles, each wielding considerable influences in the capital. Their role in the government has changed over the centuries, but they still possess special liberties and are treated akin to lesser royalty. Among the rights of the great princes maintained is the prerogative to gather liegemen and equip them for war. Many of them have voluntarily abandoned this privilege to concede their vassals to the sovereign and the high command, encouraging them to serve as officers in the Cadoran army. Others have preserved their martial traditions as a matter of family pride. The Cadoran sovereign has traditionally bestowed upon the great nobles military honors and ranks befitting of their station. A number of great princes and their highest vassals are currently commandants and commanders in the Cadoran army, even if mostly rarely participate directly in military action. Several hold, several hold these ranks in name only and allow hand-picked subordinates to lead the soldiers under their command. Like most royalty, they don't actually want to be in direct combat if they can avoid it. Uh, despite the general accord brought by these measures, the Empress is well aware that a sufficiently ambitious great prince could threaten the unity of the Gadorn's people. Only those peerless nobles would be able to make the convincing claim to her throne. The Tepeski line, in particular, has long been a rival of the Venars and never fully trusted. Umbrian nobles have repeatedly proven their loyalty to the great prince Tepeski before the rightful sovereign. There are many nobles in the capital that believe the Tibeskis have never abandoned the dream of sitting on the throne. Over the years, great rival princes and other political advisors urged both Regent Simonovev Lestavia and Empress Anne to strip the Tibeskis of their authority and to pass the Vlaskia to other hands. Despite pressure, this drastic measure was never approved. Such a decree could stir up popular support for the Tibeskis family in the East, where they retained considerable clout and are held in almost legendary esteem. The situation has been complicated in the recent decades since the current Tibeski great Prince Vladimir manifested warcaster talents and devoted his life to fighting alongside the Kadorn army as well as providing invaluable mentoring to promising warcasters. Despite these apparent good works, the questions of the Tibeski's loyalty returned to the fore after successful capture of Lael, which united the lands once called Umbri. Several eastern great princes have meanwhile allied beneath the Tibeski banner, and awareness of renewed Umbrian sentiment is prompting considerable unease in Korsk. Closer to the war front, Vladimir Tibeski has been earning quite a different reputation among those who have fought alongside him. They call him the Dark Champion and know he has performed acts of singular heroism and risked his life time and again against the enemies of Kodor. They have seen him suffer to save their lives. Even his adversaries would not dare to question his courage, though they may harbor doubts regarding his long-term goals. Alongside the Sovereign and the Great Princes, another force has arisen in recent decades to play a significant role in the nation's political schemes, the Kayazi. The class of wealthy commoners or merchant princes have long history but increased significantly in both power and prominence after King Ived abolished serfdom. It includes any influential men of wealth, both those with legitimate business dealings and those who control criminal enterprises. 
particularly those in Kursk. Their wealth has been essential to fund the number of vital industrial endeavors valued by the crown and the army, and this in turn gives them political power. The Kayazi resent the influence of the great prince and other nobles in Kodor and have worked to elevate their own position while reducing that of individuals they see as relic of a bygone era. This class-based tension has only increased as the strain of war has placed a considerable burden on the Kayazi, and they intend to reap the benefits. Empress Ayan Vanar has proven quite adept to maneuvering both groups to her advantage, sometimes pitting one against the other. She has reasons more often than not to side with the Kayazi against the families, which after all might otherwise threaten her rule. I suppose the scheming of the princes is always a threat to the queen, because it's always been a, or <laughs> a threat to the empress rather, because it's always been there in the background of Kadoran history, so that is something that she should probably look out for. But moving on to reforming the military. Kadoran pride in their military prowess has sometimes stood in the way of innovation and progress. After the founding of Kodor and the Corvus Treaties, the army was far from cohesive and internally consistent force. Instead, the nation relied upon a dozen loosely affiliated and allied militias that have been created on the remnants of forces involved in the Orgoth Rebellion. Each was well-led and consisted of loyal and competent citizen soldiers, but operated almost autonomously and without a clear chain of command. Most of these groups were headed by officers claiming noble blood, often through one of the great princes, leaders directly appointed by the sovereign and descendants of the significant heroes of the rebellion. Theoretically, all fought towards the same end, the protection of Kodor and its interest, but in many cases, the needs of individuals, high-ranking leaders, dictated a specific group of willingness to deploy for conflicts and the enthusiasm with which soldiers entered battle. As later military historians would remark, the army was held hostage by games of politics. Like many, many militaries in history, both in Kane and in real history, it's always a game of politics whenever there's no military chain of command. Soldiers in the post-Corvus Treaty era were divided loosely into three categories, a conceptual division that remains deeply ingrained in Kadorn military history and doctrine. First were the conscripted masses, poorly trained and cheaply outfitted, but capable of being called to duty in large numbers. Second was the core of the dedicated and professional soldiers who had committed to the life in the military. And the third was the elite of the elite, represented by heavy cavalry whose presence had long been considered necessary for any hope of military success. Even before the most recent military reforms, Kodor did not dismiss the fighting caliber of even its conscripted levies, which they insisted were better than the standard fighting men of many of the lesser southern nations. The cards once boasted that even the most untrained northern farmer was equal to two or three southern soldiers, an attitude that carried forward into an era after the Corvus Treaties. Nonetheless, the army acknowledged that the national treasury could not afford to outfit the bulk of the poorly trained troops with the best weapons or armor, and thus the conscripts had to make do with minimal support. They were intended to provide the raw manpower required to overwhelm the enemy and were overflung into battle with the very little direction or even expectations of survival. Well, that's not a very good sign. It's like, we're just going to outdo you with numbers and, well, we're, we can't really give them military equipment, but uh, they'll, they'll probably just overwhelm the enemy. Lots of death, I imagine, happen with that type of thinking. 
The secondary major category of soldiers was the professional and dedicated infantry, sometimes liegemen and bannermen of various nobles. Some professional soldiers were originally conscripts who stayed in the military after their obligatory service ended. Having discovered an aptitude for battle and leadership qualities deserving of permanent post. These highly valuable soldiers were far less numerous, but formed the backbone of the army, able to be relied upon in circumstances where conscripts could not. The oldest surviving example of the class of soldiers are the Iron Fangs, pikemen organized from previous disparate armored pikemen tradition of King or by King Ian Grasnada in 398 AR. Grasnada authorized the creation of the Iron Fangs to see if men on foot could be trained to stand against and defeat enemy warjacks, drawing on techniques once applied to bring down oversized prey like wild bears. Their success allowed them to gain recognition and prompted the army to increase their number in time until they became the army's most numerous and respected heavy infantry. It was from these professional soldiers that Kodor's first legions were formed. The term carries with it a certain inherent degree of prestige and esteem. Legions were the first large, cohesive group of similarly equipped soldiers with the officers who was acknowledged by the crown. Aside from this example, like Grasnada's Iron Fang, the training outfitted and equipped other soldiers in the class remained among the most highly varied in the early Kodoran army. With a myriad of traditions having arisen in different regions, the quality of arms and armaments was highly dependent on the funds afforded by whichever nobles or wealthy patrons supported their efforts. Given their economic pressures, it was not all that uncommon for such professional soldiers to give up their service to the army occasionally to seek better pay as mercenaries abroad, depriving the army of their valuable skills unless specifically called upon. This was particularly prevalent in the remote border regions. The third and most highly respected categories of soldiers was the cavalry. Even after the advent and widespread use of warjacks, cavalry remained a mainstay in the Kadoran army as part of the unbroken traditions from before recorded history. Mounted warriors typically originated among the Kodor's large aristocracy and were joined by the sons of wealthy Kayazi who could afford to outfit themselves as was necessary for riding heavy horses. And we have a little side panel here that we're going to read. Kadorn's Army Honors and Awards. And if you're on the YouTube channel, I will be posting pictures of this with their descriptions. First, we have the Shield of Kardavik, awarded for unflinching service and obedience in time of war. The Shield of Kardavik is required for any officer who seeks to gain promotions above the rank of captain. Then we have the Anvil of Conquest. This medal is awarded to soldiers who has played a key role in a major victory and recognizes the infliction of brutal casualties upon the enemy. Each recipient must have accounted for more confirmed kills than any soldier in his unit. It is a particularly prized among Widowmakers, and I can see why. Stars of the Motherland, a highly valued and prestigious honor, this rarely awarded medal is given to soldiers who has continued to battle the enemy even after the face of almost certain defeat. This award is always bestowed directly by the High Command at a ceremonial presided over by one of the Supreme Commandants. We have the Sabres of Service. Each of the Sabres on this medal represent a decade of service, and therefore the medal is bestowed only upon those who had maintained an exceptional service record for at least 20 years in the Kadoran Army. Then we have the Order of Vanar, the highest medal currently awarded in the Kadoran Army. The Order of the Vanar is bestowed directly by the Empress. It is usually accompanied by granting of a title of Viscount or Pasadnik. 
along with a bestowal of lands or similar holdings. Well, if you get one, congratulations. I imagine Widowmakers, you could probably, uh, well, those guys probably have a collection of them, which is unsettling in the greatest sense. But let's keep reading. Historically, the prestige of cavalry and Kodor was linked to the weight of armor and to the quality of weaponry fielded with the ancient Ulan Drakens as its pinnacle. This lancer embodied the might of the imperishable steel astride their hulking Carpathon destriers, horses bred for strength and stamina. Drakens were capable of running rockshod over lesser soldiers with impunity. The tradition has been passed along the modern military descendants like the Iron Fang Olins or the steam-powered Manowar Drakens. Kodor has found use for the lighter cavalry as messengers for harassment and in reconnaissance, but the horsemen have never commanded the same esteem as heavy cavalry. The Kodoran sovereign was traditionally given liberal freedoms to levy conscripts, but raising a sufficient force of professional infantry and cavalry required the cooperation of great princes, the lesser nobility, and also in times the wealthy Kayazi. This placed inherent constraints on the throne when assembling soldiers for war, requiring the application of political pressure to ensure compliance. The Kodoran treasury in the 200s and 300s was rarely in position to support large armies beyond conscripts without aid. And this also prevented Kodor from relying much on mercenary support. Funds were instead allocated first towards the conscripts of the Kodor's Colossals and later towards subsequent Warjack Chassis production. These circumstances not only kept Kodor's army behind the times, but also contributed to the instability of the throne until the establishment of the Vanar dynasty. It was King Mikhail Vanar who instituted the first major reforms to the Kodoran army. King Mikhail had been a warrior and soldier for most of his life, and he considered improving the army his highest priority. While plagued by the festering illness that would eventually lead to his demise in 468 AR, he began the work that would eventually lead to the Kadoran army as it is known today. His establishment of the high command ensured his work would not end with his death. It was under King Mikhail in 460 that the Winter Guard was established to give greater cohesiveness and structure to the Gadoran system of widespread conscription and to provide a true standing army of sufficient size for Kodor's needs, making a significant step towards modernizing the Gadoran army. Mikhail invested in firearms for the Winter Guard, choosing short-range blunderbuss that were cheap but brutally efficient nonetheless. This was not an initially popular decision as it required levying heavy taxes to fund the expansion of the Kadoran's alchemical industries, but it enabled the army to move away from the feudal roots at last. Then we have a little side note here, Kadoran Mechanics Assembly, based on based out of Ragovna complex in Korsk since the inception in 393 AR, the Kadoran Mechanic Assembly, also known as the KMA, has been a crucial partner in the Kadoran military. The mechanics of this august organization are the undisputed mechanic experts for the nation, responsible for all common Kadoran warjack designs and development of man -of war armor. They have recently expanded their operation to create a sizable secondary foundry in Marowin, and other occupied cities may eventually add additional production capacity. The most famous of the nation's engineering masters, Grand Vizier Simonev Blastovia, began his rise to power among his brotherhood. Before he was Grand Vizier or Regent, he was the Director of Munition Research at the Givna Complex. 
Not only has Simonev innovated several significant military improvements, but he also ensured the, this organization and its facilities remained well supported by the Treasury and thus capable of continuing to produce a sufficient quantity of warjacks, man of war armor, and other mechanical weapons to maintain the strength of the Kadorn army. Innovation and engineering improvements are important to the KMA, but their primary focus is on production efficiency and the long-term stability of their warjack chassis. The Regivna complex has maintained a cohesive vision that is reflected in their jack chassis and man of war designs, while the high command has tasked them to evolve their machines steadily to suit the ever-changing needs of war. These engineers believe the best solution is usually the simple one. The Kadoran aesthetic is deeply ingrained and includes such elements as thick armor to toughen a machine redundant systems to prevent easy crippling, and engines powerful enough to deliver tremendous raw force. When it comes to munitions, the designers prefer delivering a heavy payload, even if that means sacrificing pinpoint accuracy. Accordingly, technology innovations are not necessarily a strong suit for the KMA, although occasionally sparks of genius emerge from their tight-knit and insular brotherhood. By and large, they are interested in incremental improvements over radical redesigns. They have a distrust for intricate but delicate components and complicated assemblies, which they consider to be the greatest flaw of the Signaran engineering approach. Although in Signar's defense for their innovation and changing up of warjacks, having lighter warjacks and more nimble and a bunch of different you know, chassis designs, uh, Signar actually has the resources to be able to make as many Cortexes as they want, so that is why they, you know, experiment, because, you know, they don't have limited supply on those materials to make Cortexes, which is basically the entire brain of a Warjack, which, you know, Kodor tries to protect that as much as they can, thus being their simple heavy armored and high damage output Warjacks. But let's get back to the reading. King Mikhail established a clear rank hierarchy, eliminated redundant regional military ranks in favor of a universal system covering every corner of Kodor. Additional measures, including approving the development of the Juggernaut Warjack and eventual the first generation of destroyers, Warjacks are now considered exemplary to the modern Kadoran approach to war. Mikhail saw the first Juggernaut production in 465 AR and heralded it as the triumph of Kadoran engineering, but the destroyer was not finished in production standard until 480 after his death. The modern variants of these Warjacks were refined after the first Thornwood War, but their basic functions and iconic appearance are the legacy of King Mikhail. While the king was unable to accomplish all his goals before his illness consumed him, he had taken vital steps to begin establishing a cohesive Kadorn army, independent of the political vagaries of great princes and the court. The Venars are credited with the majority of the modernization of the Kadorn military, and for good reason. However, some responsibilities also rest with a single sovereign who interrupted their dynasty, King Ruslan Vigor. The Thornwood War in 510 to 511 AR had a major impact on modern military thinking and led to the re-examination of the Kadorn tactics. The great cost and bloodshed of the war would result in not only the improvement of both the Juggernaut and the Destroyer chassis, but also to re-evaluation of what would be necessary to fight on equal and eventual superior footing to other modern armies. Analysis of the battles in this war later occupied a number of preeminent military thinkers, including Rurik Zirkova, Gorvalt Rusk, 
and others who would pave the way for the modern tactics endorsed by the High Command. While King Vigor was blamed for the loss of the First Thornwood War, he is credited while with the daring and unprecedented stratagem of sending a bulk of Cadorn's heavy cavalry against Lael's borders as a gambit to lure out Signarn's army. This tactic convinced Signar's king his ally was about to be invaded and nearly allowed Kodor to march in main forces through the Thornwood uncontested. Unfortunately, the ruse was discovered in time to allow Signar to perform a desperate forced march to intercede and successful battles leading up to the eventual defeat at the Battle of the Tongue offered a challenge to the Kadoran Maxim with no sizable engagement could William won without heavy cavalry. Nobles considering themselves the descendants of the Horse Lord did not embrace this conclusion, but it served as a significant dividing line between the old and modern approaches to the military. And I believe in that particular battle, that's where Karchev the Terrible was actually grounded, basically. Um, he was injured to the point where he lost all of his limbs, and that is that battle is the reason that he is now in his warjack suit today, almost a hundred years later. Yeah, that's pretty disturbing, but let's keep reading. King Ivid Venar, who ruled from 545 to 572 AR, carried forward the work of his predecessors to further modernize the military, laying the foundation for Regent Simone Blastuvia and the current Empress Anne Venar, the king's granddaughter. During the reign of these three rulers, Kodor had placed an ever-increasing importance on engineering and mechanical advance including investing in significant improvements to the new Kadoran Warjack chassis and improving the power and portability of the Kadoran field ordnance. And we have a little side note here, the Druzina and the Kadoran Military Academy. I do apologize, I don't know why I am so good at mispronouncing all of these names. The Kadoran Military Academy is the largest center for Winter Guard training in Kodor. It is a sprawling complex of barracks, mustering fields, obstacle courses, and austere training buildings located outside of the city of Volingrad. Many thousands of Winter Guard recruits go through basic training here. They must endure grueling exercises in every environment, learning not just how to handle weapons and to obey orders, but also how to deal with varied terrain and weather. The name of the academy is somewhat a misnomer. It is a very little education in a formal sense, and the Kadoran Military Academy bears little resemblance to such places as Signar's Strategic Academy that distinction is held by the Druzina. The Druzina in Korsk is considerable more prestigious and represents the first step towards the prominent military career. The Druzina is a forge for Kodor's finest officers, and it is here that soldiers who was once a conscript can become a professional officer versed in both advanced tactics and methodology of leading others into battle. Entrance to the Druzina is a merit base for most Kadoran citizens, although those with sufficient noble standing or who are wealthy enough to pay a substantial fee to cover boarding and training are accepted automatically. Even for those born of privilege, graduation is a difficult task. Those who pass muster are offered an officer commission on graduation and begin their rise within the military elite. Most Kadoran warcasters are also expected to train at the Druzina if they not already passed its courses during earlier military training. The Druzina has limited courses available specifically related to warcaster skills and functions, but it provides each of the individuals with instruction required to lead subordinates successfully. Given the high starting rank of even young warcasters, they are held in the absolute highest standard during this process, and repeating courses is not uncommon even if they earn marks that might have been considered acceptable to other cadets. Training at the Druzinia 
is counted as a considerable expense by the Cadoran treasury and brings with it a certain obligation. Those who graduate the Druzina are pressured into staying in the military as their life's profession, and early retirement is severely frowned upon. The high command goes to great lengths to discourage the practice and offers regular pay grade incentives to those who remain in service. In a time of war such as the present, the high command empowered to reactivate any former officer and to enforce a resumption of duties. <laughs> so if you went to this officer school, you are not allowed to basically retire. They'll just pull you back in when they need you. Well, that's always fun. Let's keep reading. While the Man of War steam-powered armor entered mass production in 474 AR, Sinbad Blistovia personally implemented substantial engineering improvements a century later and helped bring these heavily armored mechanical augmented infantry to their current position at the fore of Cadoran assault forces. The diversification and broad implementation of the Man of War armor enabled the army to overcome the numerical disadvantage of its warjacks, prompted by the general scarcity of material needed for the high-grade warjack cortex construction. With their implacable resolve and their use of impenetrable armor, an overwhelming force that man of war troops are the perfect example of the practical application of Cadoran military philosophy. Blastavia had considerable influence in reinforcing the importance of mechanical innovation and the improvement for the military, bringing the Cadoran mechanical assembly to its highest prestige. While the existence of the high command with its body of senior military officers has certainly provided a degree of continuity and efficiency to the Cadoran army. Many would argue that the greatest innovation in Cadoran military thought has arisen not from its body, but from the mind of the one exceptional man, Supreme Commandant Gervalt Ursk. Once a protege of the present premier, Mikhail Horsk is credited with almost single-handedly redefining Cadoran military thinking. Most of Earth's greatest innovations have greater tactical than strategic value, but it has done much to shape the general composition of the army and the way it is employed against Kodor's enemies. It is by this pressure that the Winter Guard has begun to improve their weaponry. He has also revolutionized gunnery science and has had a direct hand on developing Kodoran artillery. The conquest of Lael has brought the Order of the Golden Crucible and the majority of its holding under the control of the Empire. This has allowed the implementation of relatively accurate rockets among the Winter Guard. Both the invasion of Lael and the fall of Northgard, which led to the capture of Thornwood Forest, are proof that Urusk's visionary leadership and the undisputed effectiveness of his methods. And then we have a little makeup right here of Urusk Advanced Assault Force, the 4th Assault Legion, 9th Command, 3rd Division, 2nd Army. And of course, the leadership of this is Gurvat Urusk himself, but he is not permanently attached. Also commanded by Stratavit, uh, Lieutenant Commander, and all those guys. And then the assets, you guys can read that because I'm going to post it on the YouTube channel. But it includes a bunch of Iron Fang, a bunch of Winter Guard, a lot of Man of War, a lot of Assault Commandos, Iron Fang Olins, Man of War Drakens, and 80 Heavy Warjacks. That is a lot for just one force. Their motto, of course, is Walls Ahead, Rubble Behind. The 4th Assault Legion has a reputation as a favored heavy armor force of Supreme Commandant Gurvalk Ursk and is relied upon when he needs to devastate fortified enemy positions or hit and overrun Signarn lines. They perfectly embody the offensive battlefield principles of the Hammer, Kodor's second army, and the 4th Legion is expected to move rapidly, hit hard, and roll straight over the unprepared enemies. Urusk personally led the Legion in early battles at the river crossing of Rizzer, Riversmet, 
during the invasion of Lael, and they also took part in the initial attacks that protected and bloody siege of Merowyn. The 4th Assault Legion was one of the first forces pulled from the siege to swing south and lead the daring attack against the entrenched forces at Northgard. Forces from the 4th Division of Ravensgard joined them soon thereafter, and it quickly grew into one of the most intense engagements of the war. Though the Cadorn attack did not succeed at toppling Northgard at that time, doing so was not their true agenda. Rather, they were employed to threaten Signarn and divide the southern nation's attention. This worked exactly as planned, forcing Signar to withdraw from the defense of Merowyn and fight to preserve its northern stronghold. The fall of the capital soon followed, along with the eventual surrender of Lael's ruling nobles. It was estimated the Signar suffered its highest casualties of the war to date in these battles defending their borders. The 4th Assault Legion accounted for a large portion of those kills and is credited by the High Command with a second highest count of Warjack kills in the Gadorn army, exceeding only by the 5th Border Legion. Months of patrolling Eastern Lael gave the Legion time to receive an infusion of fresh recruits and regain their strength. Soon after, they were called upon once more again to prove their merit. Urisk employed the 4th in both the major assaults at Northgard that would eventually lead to its fall. It was the members of the Legion's Demolition Corps that ultimately broke through Northgard's walls and seized the main fortress interior in the historic victory. The 4th Assault Legion is considered primarily an Iron Fang Legion, but it includes a number of other elements fighting along the Iron Fang pikemen. The Ullens is a strong complement of Man of War troops including Demolition Corps, Shock Troopers, Bombardiers, and several highly trained Drakens. Recently, Assault Commandos has been integrated into the Legion, and it is also supported by a number of veteran Winter Guard companies, including Mortar and Field Gun Fire Support. So yeah, that's fun. And if anybody plays Mark IV, the opening of the theme list, because, you know, theme list kind of restricted the amount of different forces, but if you play the Mark IV rules with the Unlimited, you can mix and match every Man of War or Iron Fang Pikeman that you want into a destructive killing force yet again. So that is great for the game mechanics in the future. But let's get back to the reading. The Army Rank and File. Military enlistment is compulsory in Kodor and a single tour of duty is required for all men with the exception of those with extreme physical disfigurement, generally starting at age 15. The standard length of compulsory service is five years, although this period can be adjusted depending on the variety of factors. Wealthy Kiazis or deemed necessary for essential duties to Kodor can exert pressure to obtain the reduction of this service down to a minimum of two years. After the service is fulfilled, citizens are allowed to return to their lives and resume whatever trade or craft they practice or were apprenticing for before enlistment. For the first several months of enlistment, men and women undergo constant drills and training focused on discipline, stamina, and necessary fighting skills in order to perform with competence in the Winter Guard. Certain classes of citizens are exempted from joining the Winter Guard, but are still expected to undergo military training and to stand ready to serve if called upon. This is most noticeable with the vassals or their heirs of the great princes, the most powerful ruling families of Kodor. These families have their own martial traditions, although members often join one of the more prestigious branches of the army, such as the Iron Fang Olins. Each great prince is expected to equip and train his closest vassals and members of his household. 
This training is far more extensive and rigorous than those employed by the Winter Guard, but those would accuse the princes of archaic techniques that ignore modern combat doctrines to focus on battle by horseback and dueling with blade or axe. Members of those families can choose to join the army are guaranteed officer commissions, and this is a popular career choice among various noble sons and daughters. As the Kadoran army marches to war, every citizen of the nation is called to play its part. The army is eager to take advantage of the specialized skills of its far-flung and even rustic kinsmen such as the reclusive Kazites of the Northwest. These men and women have sometimes been aloof from the affairs of the capital, but they remain patriotic and are often willing to travel hundreds of miles to Scarsfell's forest to bring their skills to the front. Their familiarity with difficult terrain has proven invaluable as Kodor continues its operations against Signar through the densely forested Thornwood. The Kazites are sometimes subject to similar prejudices as Umbrians in both groups find advancement in the rank particularly difficult. It is rare for the Umbrian or Kazite to be promoted past the lower ranks and only select few occupy positions of real authority. Kodor's Three Armies Kadorn forces are divided into three armies. Each one is overseen by one of the three superior, supreme commandants, who are a part of the high command under the premier. These supreme commandants focus on long-term strategy, personal and logistics, and remain at the capital except for unusual circumstances. The system has traditionally served to keep the Kadorn army functioning smoothly and prevent top-level miscommunications. In 607 AR, before the second and ultimately successful attack on Northgard, Empress Ayn Venar promoted Urisk to become the 4th Supreme Commandant. This was deemed necessary as Kodor pushed its soldiers deeper into the former enemy territories and these armies had to divide their resources between occupation forces, border protections, and ever-ready assault legions. While the Supreme Commandant in the capital remained responsible for the oversight and direction of their individual armies, Urisk's proximity to the front lines placed him in a unique position to coordinate their combined action and create fighting elements drawn from any of the three armies to achieve the High Command's goals. Having a single voice of authority has proven to be essential in recent months as Kodor's armies operate at great distances from the capital. There are many senior officers who are uneasy about having a supreme commandment set apart from the high command and argue it critically compromises the authority of the body for him to be able to preeminent their orders. Empress Venar maintains that the high command exists primarily to provide advance advice to the sovereign and to formulate top-level strategy not to serve as leadership to the men or women fighting hundreds of miles away in the field, a task better suited to Ursk. Along with the Empress, Premier Horse has given Ursk his full support, and so this arrangement is not likely to change. The current Kadoran military doctrine departs from tradition and is most concisely explained in the military tomb, Ursk on Conquest, which is a great book. The outlines the concepts of the anvil, the hammer, and the forge. Kodor's first army is the anvil, the second army is the hammer, and the third army is the forge. The anvil creates fixed positions and is impossible to besiege and assail. The hammer strikes wherever it is needed, and the forge protects the heartland and trains capable soldiers. The Winter Guard is the backbone of all three armies. A number of highly specialized services make up for its shortcomings of these conscripted fighters, including the powerful heavy infantry like man-of-war soldiers, the Iron Fangs and the Assault Commandos, skilled cavalry and specialized snipers and reconnaissance forces such as the Widowmakers. As a rule, warcasters are almost never permanently attached to a specific company, division, or even army. 
Their strategic importance is too vital to be limited in this regard, and they are freely reassigned by the high command as required. There are exceptions, and it is often the case that a particular warcaster serves for a set period of time with a given battalion, forming close ties with its officers. In some cases, the warcaster may be given liberty to reallocate key personnel in order to retain them during the reassignment. Usually, high command warcaster officers have a greater responsibility and duties requiring the oversight of far larger forces than the ones immediately at hand. And, you know, there are many warcasters in the Kadoran army that like particular branches, uh, such as Sorska being very prominent among the Winter Guard armies until her promotion into the Man of War divisions. Which is kind of crazy that she, the, one of the most dodgy warcasters in the Kadoran military, got put into the slowest man of war armor. But that is High Command. I don't question them at all. And we have a little side note here the High Command. One of the strengths of the Kadoran military is the centralized leadership. Embodied in the Kadoran High Command, an influential council serving the Empress by overseeing the entire Kadoran military, both Army and Navy. The High Command invites participation from all retired officers, rank commanders, or higher in the Army, and captain or higher in the Navy. Kodor considers these men and women an invaluable resource for the draw of decades of experience to analyze and evaluate future strategies. Most of these retired officers serve solely as advisors and no actual field authority. The exceptions are the three supreme commandants in charge of strategy for each of the Kadoran armies and the Premier, barring interventions from the Empress. Orders from Premier Mikhail Horst are absolute. As important as the High Command as its battle-seasoned veteran officers are the extensive hive of clerks and supply officers maintaining vital military correspondence in the ever-increasing vault of army records. Any large army requires an adequate bureaucracy to support its activities, and the Kadoran army is no exception. An extremely high volume of traffic passes through the high command on a daily basis, including the constant stream of incoming requests and outgoing orders. The military payroll is one of the most important tasks handed by this bureaucratic staff, as the ranking officers know quite well that it requires more than simply patriotism and loyalty to motivate its soldiers. A large number of Kadoran soldiers defer a significant portion of their wages to their families. The bureaucratic infrastructure allows the motherland's fighting men and women to feel confident that those they have left behind are secure. The needs of expanding conquered territories and theaters of operation have necessitated a large secondary office of the staff in Morrowind. This hub is under the supervision of Commandant Mikhail Idvadnevich. You'll have to read that yourself. I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Uh, Who leads the first army in the field. There have been talks to the Empress Court that the entire High Command should consider relocating to Marowin in order to reduce delays in communication. The officers of this body have been reluctant to consider any such proposal, which they shouldn't because in the future we know what happens to that. Or at least we will discuss this at the end of the chapter. Or will we? Mm, Mark 4, let's see what happens. Uh, The officers of this body are reluctant to consider any such proposal which has in turn led to criticism that they are becoming lazy and fat in the capital. The counter-argument of this proposal is that the fact that the High Command is expected to advise the Empress, a task that would be difficult from 400 miles away, which is true. Also, after the Infernal's War, a lot of weird things happened in Kodor, including a civil war and including a marriage of a 
royal a nobility in Lail with a nobility in Signar that caused a lot of issues with Kodor being able to hold Lail and a civil war in Kodor did not help maintain that anyway. But we'll discuss that more in the future. Maybe at the end of here, maybe in a future video, we will see. New battles yield new opportunities to examine old methods, and even Urisk is adapted to his methodology in light of new challenges while taming the Thornwood and pressing Kodor's advantage against the southern foe. In the recent phase of fighting, the three armies have been working more closely together than before, more regularly operating outside their assigned operation regions. Supreme Commandant Urisk sees this as a consistent with the core of the Anvil, the Hammer, and the Forge Doctrine, as each was never intended to exist without the other. Ursk also changed the methodology of the Army Occupation Forces. The Premier considers it a high priority to reduce the number of soldiers tied up in the rear areas and involved with policing conquered populations. Accordingly, the number of Kadoran soldiers stationed in the Lale has been reduced considerably. Many of the soldiers have been moved south to protect supply lines through the Thornwood Forest or to help maintain pressure against Signar along the Dragon's Tongue River. Certain officers believe it is too early for these measures as several large Lely cities have yet to be quelled and still suffer from internal dissent. Others point to the fact that the Protectorate of Minath, a hostile theocracy with designs on Kodor's more pious citizens, recently seized control of Laren a major Lely city that had previously been occupied by the Kadoran army. There are no specific plans to pacify the region of Eastern Lael remaining outside of Kadoran control. So long as Kador controls Merowin, Laudry, and the majority of production of the Lely's mines, the High Command feels it is unnecessary to commit greater resources to this area. This attitude is not shared by everyone in the military, particularly frontline commanders who see the loss of Laren as significant. Even with the military successes, plundering a large volume of the useful supplies from the former headquarters of the Order of the Golden Crucible in the city, the alchemical production capacity and other industrial assets will be sorely missed. However, many of the technological advancements that were pioneered by the OGC, or I believe that is the Order of the Golden Crucible, and were jealously guarded secrets that have been discovered by the Grey Lords and handed over to the KMA, for integration into the ongoing wartime development. Furthermore, a number of the senior OGC alchemists and their staff were forcibly relocated to the Kadoran interior where they oversee production of blasting powder. Also, side note, I believe there is a book on some mercenaries that have a have to get something out there out of Laldry, owned by, of course, the Menites. So if you do want to read that, the book is out there. Uh, Thornwood has opened up its own share of problems far more than the anticipated before the fall of Northgar. The wilderness region is sparsely inhabited, with challenging terrain and lack of adequate roads. Supply lines through the forest have come almost under constant attack. These attacks are unpredictable and difficult to identify, let alone prevent. Crix is believed to be responsible for much of the difficulty, but there is also evidence of persistent Signar interference as well as the brutal attacks by less organized savages who seem to maintain a tenuous hold on certain regions of the forest. Almost immediately after pushing Signar's army out of the region, Kodor began constructing fortifications to defend its new acquisition. This included the ambitious chain of fortresses along the Dragon's Tongue River along with a supply fort and road construction passing through the forest. Despite an aggressive allocation of manpower, 
This effort has been costlier than expected, and construction has been proceeded at a snail's pace. The aggressive schedule initially put forth by the High Command has proven to be completely infeasible. Even in the face of these setbacks, the Kadoran army remains resolute as it seeks to restore Kodor's territories, the glory once achieved under the Kardic Empire, and to preserve its new borders from hostile neighbors. The three armies work together to ensure that any who oppose the will of the Empress will be humbled. Conscription has served to maintain the strength of the army, bringing in new recruits to replace those lost in battle, and Kodor's industrial strength has ensured that the soldiers and the warjacks who fight alongside them are properly equipped to wage war. It is Supreme Commanded Earth's goal to make each individual element of the army so strong and self-sufficient that it can prosper and win victories even when isolated from the rest. To those who worry about supply lines in the Thornwood, he insists that his forces can hold their own against Signar with or without external support. This boast will certainly be tested in upcoming months. And it was, because during the run of this, the Infernal Spurnals War started, and that kind of took over everybody. But let's digress back to the reading. The First Army, the Anvil. The Anvil, or the First Army, is called upon for protracted engagements and has been trained and conditioned for stamina. In theory, the Anvil is sent forward to engage and tie up enemy forces across large territories, positioning them for the hammer to strike at with the full strength of the flake. The Anvil's tactics are designed to maximize resiliency by constantly cycling between active and reserve forces and taking the time to recover from casualties. Its officers consider themselves the Kadorn's military's foremost experts on conducting extended sieges. It also serves as an active reserve where veteran soldiers can be rotated off the front line to recuperate and while remaining close to the battlefield. This is the army that has been relied upon before all others to hold conquered territories and to assimilate them into the empire. Although it plays a major offensive role in the conquest of Lael, the first army has since been battling resistant elements and squashing insurrection. None of the soldiers take the occupation of Lael for granted, as they have endured many unexpected ambushes and sometimes surprisingly well-organized attacks from rebel forces. It is this role that the first was not particularly well-suited, although the officers have learned many hard lessons from the last several years and have begun to make headway to pacify Lael. Increasingly, Laeli cities have become productive resources of auxiliary Kodoran industry a fact that First Army views with no small measure of pride. While most Laley citizens still refer to themselves as such, there is less resistance to the cities like Merowin and Laudry to the idea that their efforts are strengthening the Kadorn Empire. As most livelihoods have been preserved and daily life is largely unchanged, these citizens have begun to accept the life is not so different under Kadorn control as when Lael was in the independent kingdom. Despite these encouraging signs, the recent drastic reduction in the number of soldiers allocated to Garrison Lale is a concern to the officers of the 2nd Division, led by Commandant Voroslav Klimovic. Apologies to another butchering of a name. There is a reason to expect that the withdrawal of Kadorn troops may encourage Eastern rebels to renew their attacks. Added to this have been hostile actions by other powers, including the Protectorate of Minath, as well as the recent unexpected and inexplicable attacks by Iowan soldiers. The possibility of additional clashes with the Protectorate of Minas seems inevitable, as the nation's northern crusade has turned to fortify the city of Laren into the new base of operations. A major confrontation between the northern crusade and the second division 
is considered almost a foregone conclusion and eventuality that the soldiers have been training for tirelessly. After the fall of Northgard, a significant portion of the occupying battalions was sent south to take up positions in the northern Thornwood. Maintaining Cadorn interest in the area has fallen primarily on the 1st Division of the 1st Army, led by the Commandant uh, Ilovic. This has necessitated a significant shift in tactics as the division was previously patrolling southern Lael, a relatively open and pastoral region. Operations in the Thornwood are complicated by the number of factors, including inadequate or erroneous maps, a general lack of cleared land for barracks, and a constant ambush along Cadoran supply lines. Morale in this division has plummeted, although the recent establishment of several sizable and fortified supply bases have helped to provide a better sense of security for these battalions. The First Army is nominally commanded by Supreme Commandant Ivan Krasnanovic from the High Command, but its operational direction is left in the hands of Commandant Mikhail uh, Idanovich, that's one, who controls the army from Marowin. Commandant, they keep having me just butcher this poor man's name, Ivandanovich is a humble and quiet officer from the, an engineering background who has achieved a strong reputation and who has the faith and support of his men. Inanovich was credited by Gervalt Urusk by being instrumental in the swift and successful invasion of Lael as his oversight of the army's supply lines during the rapid invasion were critical. Despite recent problems in the Thornwood, it is generally believed that if any man can tame the forest to ensure Kadorn ammunition and food reaches soldiers on the front line, it is to be Idanovich. He has also gained some measure of popularity even among Merowin's local population for successfully restoring industry and commerce to the city, as well as repairing most of the damage inflicted during the lengthy siege. This included the restoration of sites of historical significance, which the locals have taken as a sign of mutual respect. The Second Army, the Hammer. The Hammer, or the Second Army, focuses on crushing offenses and therefore includes the largest number of assault legions, warjacks, and heavy armored infantry. Although each, region still each legion still relies heavily on basic infantry battalions or winter guard, during the invasion of Lael it was the hammer that initiated lightning attacks against Redwall Fortress, Elsenburg, and Laudry. It is this army that has been at the forefront of all major operations against Signar, including numerous attacks along the old northern border, and more recently toppling Northgard and subsequently pushing Signar forces back to the Dragon Tongues River. For these reasons, it is currently the most esteemed of Kodor's armed forces. Although Supreme Commandant Urusk is in command of all three of the Kodor's armies, he is most strongly associated with the 2nd and in particularly the 4th Assault Legions of the 3rd Division. These soldiers have fought under Urusk longer than any other and frequently serve as his vanguard. This and other assault legions specialize in making swift and decisive attacks, seeking to penetrate and destroy fortifications outright rather than to prestige them. Such tactics are not always appropriate, but Ursk has carved in various elements of this army into the diverse set of finely sharpened tools, each with its proper application. Because of this role as the forefront Kadoran assault, 
It is no surprise that the Second Army has suffered the highest casualties and includes the greatest degree of turnover for both officers and enlisted men. This army suffered during the first assault of Northgard, and even its subsequent victory came at a high cost. Fresh recruits are constantly flowing into the various depleted companies and battalions, and Ursk has implemented a highly successful methodology for ensuring new recruits are placed with seasoned veterans to learn their deadly trade. The hammer has increased substantially in size in recent months, both from freshly conscripted Winter Guard to a re re reallocating of veterans who are once part of other forces. Presently stationed within the Thornwood, the Second Army is precarious situation due to the lack of established support infrastructure. It has been positioning itself to stand as a counter to Signar forces on the other side of the Dragon's Tongue River, but practically consideration but practical consideration have been made this difficult to implement. Construction of the fortresses has been proceeding as quickly as possible, but none of these structures are yet completed and supply lines remain uneven. The enemy has the advantage of major cities such as Port Bourne or Corvus to support their own forces, putting the hammer at a distinct disadvantage. Much of the second army has been making do with woefully inadequate facilities and sporadic resupply. The men are hungry, they sleep in leaking tents, and they lack sufficient ammunition for the blunderbuss and rifles they wield. Fewer soldiers man each of the unfinished forces, fortresses than they consider acceptable, inviting Signar and reprisals. The army has had a difficult time patrolling the forest, and thus interpenetration its lines by Signar and rangers has been unavoidable. As a result, the second army has been unable to react quickly to Signar and raids or launch operations against enemy positions. Overcoming these hardships is the chief concern of the army's command, who upon the is considered pressure to swiftly remedy the situation. For the moment, the second army relies upon the efforts of its exceptional warcaster, or warcasters to make up the difference in manpower between the forces, drawing on the expertise of individuals like the forward commander Kratikov, uh, Commander Karchev or Commander Strakov. And remember, Commander Kretikov is Sorska that we mentioned previously and her great involvement with the Winter Guard. The Second Army is the purview of the Supreme Commandant Alex Gorkovich, or not Gorkovich, sorry, that's a different guy, Gorkakov at the High Command, but his influence on the Army is almost inconsequential due to the proximity and active involvement of Supreme Commandant Gorvalk Urusk. Rumors suggest considerable tension between Ursk and Gorkovkov, as the former has accused the latter of insufficient efforts to expedite delivery of material for fortresses or for fortress construction. Ursk has far better working relationship with Commander Boris Markov, the field commander of the army. Markov is a huge man with un un unapologetic, enormous appetites, a seasoned former Iron Fang who remained away from his army in the capital for some years until the birth of his son. Liberated from the fear of dying without the male heir, he rejoined the hammer with a renewed enthusiasm and seems determined now to face death fighting side by side with Gervalt Ursk. Perhaps because of the fighting reputation of this army, both its divisions are nominally led by the great princes who have been bestowed the rank of commandant by Empress Venar. Commandant and great prince Ram Voleski, or Holeski, or Holes, or Holkeski. Butchering their names is my expertise, I guess. But he is stationed in the southwestern Thornwood uh, to confront Point Bourne. Uh, he's actually the leading of the third division. Uh, commandant and great prince Zavir Morvov 
leads the 4th Division, stationed in the southeastern Thornwood, as the counter to Corvus. While having these great princes attached affords the division a certain level of prestige and pride, the actual presence of these men is rare. Their political station has kept them more often in the capital or governing their respective Bacoli Velasquez and Kodor. The commanding officers consider this for the best, as in the past the elevated political ranks of these nobles has caused confusion in the chain of command. In their absence, the details of managing the division are often left to several capable commanders who have solid rapports with both Markovov and Ursk. The Third Army, the Forge. The Third Army is responsible for training and arming new conscripts, as well as maintaining garrisons in Kodoran cities. The Five Borders Legion spreads along the length of Kodor's perimeter, fall under the Third Army's purview. These are numerous training facilities under this banner, but the city of Volingrad is the only center where the entire city is dedicated to military preparedness. The presence of the Border Legion in the Third Army makes it structurally very different from the other armies. The Third has a dubious distinction of boasting the largest separation between the far-flung personnel, as there are soldiers wearing Third Army units marking as far northwest as Oldenfrost and also as far south as Dragon's Tongue River, more than 600 miles away. Garrison duty in Kodor's interior is considered the easiest and least dangerous of posts in the Kodoran army. Though these posts bestow little prestige or honor, yet are highly desired by those with strong ties to family, such as young fathers. Recent years, however, have seen a number of unexpected threats in the Kadorn interior, making the defenses of Kodor cities both more vital and more dangerous than before. One of the most dreaded threats is the horror of the rampant Dragonspawn and their blighted minions. The High Command through the Greylords Covenant still lacks the adequate intelligence on this menace. Only a few northern and eastern towns have been plagued by these creatures, but rumors of bloodshed that ensued has spread throughout the Empire. Other sporadic internal threats include the attacks by other hostile factions, including Trolkin Creels, particularly in the northwest, or groups led by Anonatic black-clad druids. These attacks are primarily, limit primarily limited to remote regions, but remain a factor of the high command must consider when allocating its garrison forces. In addition to protecting its citizens, the Third Army must preserve vital industries like Kodor's logging and mining companies. One rumor the High Command and the Prikov, the Prikaz Chancellery has gone to great lengths to quash the hostile elements from the elven nation of Ios have recently struck inside Kodor's interior. The basis for these rumors are alleged attacks by O's and military forces against the Greylord Covenant under the base of Fort Brothnig. Exactly why the base would have been targeted and how the Iosans could have managed to penetrate so deeply inside the border have not been explained. Most officers dismiss this rumor uh, incident as fabrication designed to incite panic and doubt. Oh, I remember why, they, why the elves attacked this base. Apparently, they had a god in the basement of this base for study because one of the Kodor and Warcasters likes to study things that she probably doesn't need to be studying. And they were going to, well, grab her. So, I'll grab the god, not, not the Warcaster. They, they care less about the Warcaster. They were trying to grab their god back, which makes perfect sense. Commandant Constant Kaskovi, another apology to there, who commands the 5th Division and thus all the Border Legions, is the man held responsible for the safety of the Gadoran interior and the integrity of its borders. 
This has historically been the relative safety responsible, so no foreign power has ever successfully invaded Ghidorin soil. Nonetheless, recent turmoil has challenged this division as never before. The Third Army is under the supervision of Supreme Commandant Mishnev Serkovich as the High Command with the Field Command being held by the Great Prince and Commandant Karl Svit. The large Sikh division, which is held responsible for training and reserves, is commanded by Commandant Gresko Antonovich. The actual involvement of the Great Prince Sviet is limited, as, the, as he leaves most matters to the discretion of Zakovia Orandovich. The high command officers in the third have focused primarily on the training and supply side of the reserves along with the proper allocation of their home garrisons. Historically, the commanders of each of the border legions has been given more autonomy than any other legion in the Kadoran army. The most active soldiers in the third army are those serving as the first and fifth border legions until the fall of Northgard, the first border legion was headquartered in Ravensgard. Most first border legion companies have marched alongside the second army deeper into the Thornwood to integrate their operations with Ursk others' assets near Corvus. The much-esteemed 5th Border Legion has earned its fame since the First Thornwood War as a fighting force that has never given up the battle against Signar, even in times of apparent peace. They have recently been sent south to maintain their aggressive stance against their traditional enemy and stand ready for the call of to war in the western Thornwood near Point Bourne. The 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Border Legions are considerably smaller and less distinguished than the either the first or the fifth. They are assigned to watch the less active borders with rule, ords, eastern borders, and ords northern border, respectively. These legions are sometimes utilized to bolster interior garrisons. The third has a somewhat ominous reputation as it is rumored to be affiliated with Zavina Aga, the old witch. This legion has come to greater prominence in recent years due to the efforts to battle the internal threats plaguing Kodorn towns in the remote regions. The presence of the Third Border Legion forces in unexpected places has become synonymous with disaster, and they are still welcomed by citizens eager for the army to support against hostile wilderness elements. And the Old Witch is very good at finding those elements. But that is done with the reading, but we have one last little uh, side panel here. The 111th Infantry Battalion, the Unbreakable 111th. First Border Legion, 13th Command, 5th Division, 3rd Army. We're going to read about these guys. Leadership. Kovnik Joseph Gregorovich, who we have read about before in a solo about the Winter Guard. And then a bunch of captains underneath him. And this guy is made up of, well, entirely Winter Guard and four destroyers and one Devastator. So but they do have a bunch of Winter Guard assets in this army as well. I will be posting the picture up on it so you can read over all the assets and see how large this force is. Um, you will see that it doesn't have a lot of elite specialized troops, except for the assault commandos. But, you know, that is, well, that is normal border or normal Winter Guard setup. But the 111th fighting to the last man. There is a certain combat group in the Kadoran army held to a higher standard and considered emblematic of the entire service. The Unbreakable 111th Infantry Battalion is one of those groups. It is the first choice of every Winter Guard who finishes training at the Kadorn Military Academy in Volengrad. The fact that the battalion has the highest casualty rate is not seen as a problem to fresh recruits, but as proof as the 111th guaranteed to see battle. The 111th Infantry 
is an essential part of the First Border Legion and provides the backbone of veteran infantry support to one mobile and three mixed battalions that make up the rest of the Legion. Along with the legendary 5th, it is the only other border, border force regularly involved in the ongoing fight. For most of the history of the 111th, as it has been stationed at the Fortress of Ravensgard, where its soldiers battle against the Signar counterparts at Northgard. The roots of the 111th begin at the founding of Ravensgard, completed in 268 AR after the Colossal War, and greatly expanded after Northgard was erected in 326. The soldiers of the 111th were not yet called Winter Guard in those times, but they displayed the same insignia that has since come to utilize and adapt by many Winter Guard battalions and companies. Their motto, Fighting to the Last Man, was adapted after the battalion was twice nearly annihilated and yet still refused to rout. One of these famous battles came during the Thornwood War of 511 AR when the 111th fought to intercept reinforcements that would have been sent against their kinsmen trapped against the Dragon Tongues River. The 111th Infantry held down the Signaran forces sent from Northgard to cut off the retreating Cadorans. Cadoran scholars speculate that without the sacrifice of the 111th, this force would have intercepted the 5th Border Legion and prevented them from earning their fame in the following decades. Adding to this prestigious of the 111th Infantry is the reputation of its current commanding Kovnik Josef Grigorovich. Like most veteran Winter Guard, Grigorovich has served in many units and forces, but he came to the 111th Infantry in 593 AR as a captain and has since refused to budge even when offered promotion elsewhere. He took over the battalion from Kovnik in 598 AR and quickly earned the love and admiration of his men. After Grigorovich proved his worth in grim fighting around Ravensgarden 605 AR, Supreme Commandant Alex Grigokov of the 2nd Army offered him a promotion to full commander, hoping to make use of his services elsewhere. Grigorovich flatly refused. He said he aspired to nothing more than continuing fighting in the trenches alongside his men. The 111th was directly involved in the recent attacks against Northgard, sending forces to confront the deeply entrenched Signaran infantry in their convoluted network of perimeter defenses. The indomitable battalion once again endured heavy casualties, but succeeded in maintaining pressure on the defenders while Supreme Commandant Urisk Assault Legions advanced to the central fortress. Since the fall of Northgard, the 111th had followed the rest of the First Border Legion to march south from Ravensgard for the first time in decades. They stationed among 2nd Army Battalion northwest of Corvus, where they enduring extremely difficult conditions without complaint. And that would be the 111th Infantry Battalion. Alright class, well that does it. That that completes our first semester. That completes all of Kodor that we have. Um, if you're enjoying these, please like and subscribe. Also, if you haven't yet, please vote on what Hordes faction we will be doing next semester, if any Hordes faction, just so we can break the... Well, last time I looked at it, there was a triple tie, so please go and vote if you haven't already voted. Also, as mentioned earlier, the Mark IV military of the Kodorn army is mostly done up because there was a civil war shortly after, well, about within a nine-year span after the Infernals War. So Kodor was hurting. Kodor, you know, was lacking money. They were lacking men after so many died. And the princes decided that they wanted to try to vie for power again, stop paying taxes. And then the new Kodoran army was changed from the, you know, poorly set up Winter Guard to something that was a lot more 
manageable by Empress Ian Benar to put down these rebellions as well. Also, the dying of Urusk did not help maintain military control to the crown. So that is what happened. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but uh, we can't get that much into it because we don't have access to that lore yet for reading. But as always, thank you guys so much. Please like, subscribe. Let me know what you like. Let me know all the names I mispronounced because that's always fun. Um, please go vote for the next Hordes faction. And thank you again, Privateer Press, for letting us read your fantastic lore. And as always, class dismissed.